Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. In this episode, Easter Sunday had come and gone on the 7th of April 1901, and for most combatants stretched across the vastness of the South African felt, it was cold, eviscerated by fear and loathing. The concentration camps were filling, and women and children were beginning to die of diseases like enteric and typhoid. The numbers of the dead were in the hundreds a week. By August 1901, more than 1,800 would be dying a month, and a similar number of black men, women and children who had also been herded into camps to keep them from supplying the Boers with food and logistic support. So it was just over a week after Easter, on April 15th, that Johanna van Warmelöer took a train to see her brother Dietloff, who had been captured by the British and was being sent to Ceylon. Johanna and her mother were waiting to take the train at Sunnyside in Pretoria after leaving their estate called Harmony. There was no freedom of movement because of the war, and after initially being rejected for not having the correct signatures and paperwork, they made it on board and then chugged off for the 40-kilometre journey to Johannesburg, which even then Johanna calls the Golden City. She writes, All along the line one sees the signs of war. Here, a blown-up bridge, there, the ruins of a whole train of trucks and carriages. They also took note of the British defensive positions along that line, the plates of iron leading to trenches covered with sandbags, and all around the network of barbed wire. Empty tins, meat tins, butter tins, milk and jam tins. The idea is that when the Boers get entangled in the wires at night, Kaki can know exactly where he is by the jangling of the empty tins. Once het for hulle banya the spot. In other words, we laughed endlessly at them. That laughter dried up as they passed Irene just beyond the station where they saw the women's concentration camp. Thousands of women and children were living there in tents. There were the families of the men still fighting. Remember Lord Kitchener had ordered that these camps be set up across the north of the country to incarcerate families of the guerrilla soldiers in an attempt to hurry the end of the war. Johanna says... At a distance, it looks very nice. Rows and rows of white tents surrounded by the beautiful green forests of Irene, and they could not have chosen a prettier spot. But she also knew the people she saw in the camp were sleeping on the ground. They had no meat, no vegetables. Fresh food was thought to carry disease, so it was not allowed in. The diseases, though, had started. All the farms along the railway line between Pretoria and Johannesburg were deserted, and eventually, at Elonsfontein, which is close to the modern suburb of Germiston near Johannesburg, she spotted a massive field hospital. It is very picturesque and looked quite inviting with its snowy tents and hundreds of Tommies in regulation hospital uniform, loose suits of red and blue flannel. Her seemingly happy description of all about her belied what she was really up to, as I'll explain. While some of the mines had begun operations again, most were silent. Johannesburg was quiet. No signs of life in the streets. A ghost town. The suburbs are almost deserted, and one can see whole streets without a living thing in them. It gets on one's nerves, I can tell you, and made me feel horribly depressed. Johanna was 23 years old. What is remarkable about her is that she was keeping three different diaries. One was her secret military diary, the second her secret love diary, and the third, you could call her Open Diary. Historian Jackie Grobler pieced these three together in 2007 in a book called The War Diary of Johanna Brandt. 
Born in 1876 and the youngest of four, her father originated from Holland. Her mother was a descendant of families who had taken the great trek out of the Cape Colony. So Johanna was steeped in the oral tradition of the Boers, and when war broke out, she was to use her patriotic spirit in a spying enterprise run ostensibly by her mother. Both her parents were well-educated, which sharpened her already sharp intelligence still further. Although originally Dutch, Mr. van Warmelo became a staunch Boer patriot and passed this on to his daughter. But her father died when she was just 15 and she was brought back from Cape Town where she had been attending the Good Hope Seminary for young ladies. This meant heading to Dorenfontein College in Johannesburg and education only in English. From then on she wrote her diaries in English, which is strange considering they were her implacable enemy. But as Jackie Krobler points out, she had no real direct link to Dutch and Afrikaans was not yet well enough developed as a written language to satisfy her vast vocabulary and mind. It was about then that Johanna or Hansi, as she called herself in the third person, began communicating with someone called Andrew Brown. Because she was barely 16, her mother put an end to that. Two years later, Johanna became involved in a serious affair with Karl de Kok. An engagement followed, which lasted for three years, but in 1897, that was broken off when she was 21. Thereafter, Johanna was taken on an extensive trip to Europe with her mother, where she met her future husband, Louis Ernst Brandt. It was the eve of war. Before they were married, however, she found herself back in Harmony Estate, Sunnyside, Pretoria, when the war began. It's a somewhat prosaic CV, as you'll hear. We rejoin Johanna and her mother, though. It's Johannesburg, Saturday, 15th April, 1901. They had been tracking the misfortunes of Johanna's brother, Dietloff. For some time, it was a matter of missing, presumed dead. Then they heard he'd been captured in Potschefström, and they asked for clemency. Despite Johanna's family clout, Dietloff was being sent to Salon, like many other captured Boers. We read all about this in Johanna's diary. Hidden from view was her relationship at the same time with someone she calls... MJ in her secret love diary. We never found out who MJ was. However, Johanna was not just writing about her family, her love life. She was also keeping a detailed journal of British activity in her third diary. In their role of harmless civilians, Johanna and her mother were able to collect information on the movement of troops and smuggled this information out using letters written in invisible ink. But the two women were left in peace by the British in Pretoria, who regarded them as irrelevant civilians. Meanwhile, they were passing on notes to the Boer commanders, information which was both accurate and relevant. In her book she wrote after the Boer War, called The Petticoat Commando, which is free online by the way, Johanna explains how it transpired that while most other Boer women whose menfolk continued to fight were thrown in the concentration camps, they escaped punishment. She says, Although houses were commandeered, left and right, and officers courted on private families, as is the custom in every well-conducted war, harmony was left in peace, only one mild attempt being made a few days after the occupation of Pretoria by the officer in command of the Montmorency Scouts to obtain entrance for himself and fellow officers at harmony's inhospitable door. Then there was the matter of their firearms. Johanna and her mother wanted permission to keep their Morsa rifle, revolver and a pistol. That was going to push their luck. After all, it took three or four hours just to get a permit for her bicycle. It took that many days to get permission to retain her Colt pocket pistol for the officers in charge of the rifle department refused to let her keep it and eventually she decided to go straight to the military governor, General Maxwell. 
Orders had been issued that all firearms should be delivered to the military authorities. But in this case, Mrs. van Barmelo thought an exception should be made because two unprotected women living in an isolated homestead on the outskirts of Pretoria CBD could hardly be considered safe. The two women were received with great courtesy, and General Maxwell instantly granted them permits for the revolver and pistol, but asked them to give up their rifle. Johanna writes that he gave them a written promise, signed by himself, that the rifle would be returned to them after the war, which promise, she said, was faithfully kept. The British had imposed what Johanna called the severe censorship of their letters. Mrs. van Barmelo's high spirit rebelled against the continued surveillance of her correspondence, and she was determined to outwit the censor. It was the start of the van Varmelo woman's dangerous dabbling in spying. Johanna writes, Then began an exciting period of smuggling and contriving, which led to the most complete independence on their part of the services of Mr. Censor, and ended in a well-organized and exceedingly clever system of communication with friends in every part of the world. It all started when a sympathizer offered to smuggle any documents Mrs. van Barmelo might wish to send. There was nothing ready at the time, but she decided to make use of this opportunity for some future occasion, and wrote to her eldest daughter, who was living in the Cape. She said when a tiny piece of tissue paper was received, marked with a small blue cross, it should be examined closely. Johanna explained how she had a small Moroccan case with a maroon velvet lining, which ended up travelling back and forth between Harmony and the town of Alphen near Cape Town. With a sharp instrument, Mrs. van Weimelo had removed the entire tray-like bottom of the case, packed two or three closely written sheets of tissue paper in the opening, and pressed the little tray firmly down in its place again. A tiny blue cross, carelessly pasted on the bottom of the case, carried its own message to the conspirator at Alphen. The next adventure was with a charming lady, whom we shall call the English lady. She was so very English. She wasn't really English, explained Johanna, but a colonial from the Cape who were regarded as more British than the British. The English lady rudely told the van Barmelo woman that they were not to be trusted. So Johanna immediately thought that this woman would be ideal for their plots. After all, her intense dislike of the Boers was so well known, she wouldn't be searched properly. So the two van Varmelo women bought three china dolls from a shop in Pretoria and removed the head from one. The sheets of paper rolled up into pellets were then forced through the slender neck, writes Johanna, and the dolls weighed to see if the difference in weight were noticeable. It was not. The head was glued on again, a blue cross marked on the body, and the dolls were neatly wrapped in a brown paper parcel. The English lady came to pay her farewell call. After the usual formalities had been exchanged, she remarked that she hoped to visit Alphen soon after her arrival in Cape Town. Mrs. van Barmelo was charmed and delighted, and asked whether she would be good enough to take a parcel of three dolls for her three little grandchildren. There was just a moment's hesitation, then the English lady rapidly made up her mind. Yes, with pleasure, but I must have the parcel tomorrow, because my trunks have to be closed and sent on ahead. And so it was then that the extremely colonial English lady unknowingly was hoodwinked into being part of the van Varmelo family military spying ring. But there was an increasingly serious edge to the spying, and it involved the Irene concentration camp close to Harmony. 
The women were sending updates about the conditions in the camp to the Boers, and more importantly, to the influential journalist and editor William Thomas Stead in England. He had begun publishing the stories of the concentration camps and the increasing numbers of women and children dying of disease, starvation and even dehydration. He was the editor of the Pall Mall Gazette and then moved on and started what is known as the Review of Reviews. The Van Varmelo's next victim was a well-to-do international diplomat whose cigarette case was used to hide their letter. Mr. Stead received the documents hidden in the cigarette case in due time and made full use of the contents in his monthly magazine, The Review of Reviews, writes Johanna. Many Boers had changed sides and were now actively working with the British. In Pretoria, the chief censor was an Afrikaner who Johanna refuses to name, but hated. It was his duty to censor letters with his black pen, redacting lines in the interests of the British government. Miserable renegade, rages Johanna in her book, her blood boiling. But she was far too clever to let on how angry she was. Instantly it flashed through her mind that it would be foolish indeed to make an enemy of this man. Her whole manner changed when he told her that her letters were well written and he enjoyed censoring them. How very kind of you, she said. Yes, I shall come myself if you are sure I shall not be giving you too much trouble. A pleasure, I assure you, he answered, apparently bowing with great gallantry, and Johanna went home to tell her mother what had happened. After this interview with the censor, he allowed their letters to pass with unfailing regularity. It was then they hit upon the extremely risky plan of outwitting the censor. This is where the use of what Johanna calls chemicals, but really was just lemon juice, as invisible ink. It's an old school trick to use lemon juice and then pass a hot iron over the paper, revealing the brown writing below. They opened up a white paper envelope, wrote a few sentences on the inside of the envelope, then glued it back together again. After a few days' testing, they had a clever way to hide their notes on British plans. We were now in the possession of a scheme which defied detection, writes Johanna, speaking of herself in the third person. And the next thing to be done was to inform some distant conspirator of this valuable discovery and instruct them in the use of it. But there was a catch. Only white envelopes would work, because manila and brown envelopes would reveal the invisible ink after a few days. When the smuggled instructions were well on their way, the first white envelope was written to Holland and carelessly thrust amongst the pile of other letters by the quaking Johanna when she next handed her mail to the miserable renegade. He glanced through them all without examining them, merely putting the mark of the censor on them and assuring her that they would be forwarded that very day. The sign of the white envelope became an understood thing between the conspirators, and for all other correspondence, grey and coloured envelopes were used. These letters included a great deal of detail about both British and Boer movements. Take this for example. General Boerter is now in Ermelo district with 1,000 men. Delaray between Klaxdorp and Rustenburg, 1,500 men. Bayers near Petersburg, 1,000 men. Muller near Pilgrim's Rest, Delagoa Bay Line, with 600 or 700 men. Pietfuljun between Heidelberg and Middleburg, 1,200. Christian Boerter, District Utrecht, 600. Smuts has gone to the colony with 1,500. These are the big commandos only. You can see the kind of information Johanna and her mother were sending back and forth was actually critical for long-term planning. So now let's head back to April 15th and join Johanna and her mother in Johannesburg, the Golden City, waiting for Johanna's brother Dietloff, 
who was captured near Potrestrum and being shipped off to Ceylon. The two Boer women walked into the Provost General's office at the fort in Johannesburg, which is next door to the Constitutional Court of South Africa today. Of course, in 1901, it was a proper military installation, and even today it is quite imposing on the hill above Johannesburg. So we drove to the fort, says Johanna. They were driving in a horse-drawn buggy, of course. There they met Captain Short, the Provost Marshal, who, Johanna remarks, was also short of three fingers these having been shot off by a Boer bullet. Captain Short sent them to the station at the bottom of the hill in Bramfontein, where they could wait for the Boer prisoners. After months of believing Dietloff was dead, both women were trying to control their excitement. There I heard a well-known highly excited voice shouting, Ma! Ma! And then she writes that she cannot remember what happened next, drawing a veil over their extremely emotional greeting. Still, in the midst of all this, some humanity... While the three are in tears together, Dietloff was followed by a British soldier. He was a prisoner of war, after all. The Tommy, as they called him, turned his back on the scene, allowing the family some time together. Blessed, thrice blessed Tommy, writes Johanna. I'm sorry now we did not shake his hands. They asked permission to walk with Dietloff to the fort on the hill, which was duly granted, and Johanna writes, It must have looked very remarkable, a ruffian-looking man with a disreputable little bundle, with a well-dressed lady hanging on each arm and an armed soldier guarding. The Boer spy women and their beloved arrived at the fort within an hour. On the way, they had spoken only Dutch, but did not ask any questions for intelligence. There was not enough time in any way. The Tommy had trusted them. Dietloff was hustled into the fort prison, and Johanna and her mother went back to their hotel. They returned the next day to see him off to Salon, but when they arrived at the fort... He was standing between two English soldiers. Captain Short, who was short of three fingers, as we've heard, shouted at Johanna, You may not speak to the prisoner. But I may kiss him, she shouted back sharply. And before Tommy could prevent me, I had thrown my arms around Dietloff's neck and giving him a kiss that could be heard all over the fort. Eventually, they were allowed to speak with Dietloff for an hour, handed him a parcel that contained only food, no invisible ink letter. Mrs. van Warmelo quietly asked Dietloff about how much ammunition the Boers had left, but he refused to answer, having given his word to Captain Short that nothing of significance would be discussed about military intelligence. Then he was taken away to begin his journey to Salon. They would not see him again for two years, and the van Warmelo woman went back to Pretoria and their lemon-stained invisible ink Boer spying operation. Their letters would be crucial in revealing more about the concentration camps and the British plans across South Africa for the next year. At the end of the war in 1902, Johanna married a minister, Louis Ernst Brandt. She had become so well known that messages of congratulations came from the leaders of many European countries, and she went on to write about her experiences in the Boer War in a few books, including Petticoat Commando. She is another extraordinary character from this extraordinary war. There's just so much to say about Johanna Brandt, but that's all we have time for in this episode. Next week, I'll share some of the stories of the British soldiers known as Tommy Atkins, and we'll hear more about the New Zealanders as they continue their drives across the Transvaal and the Free State, hunting the guerrilla commanders. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. It helps push up the rankings. Thanks to Sam, by the way, who sent me a donation through PayPal. I have refrained from using any direct advertising for various reasons, but Sam's assistance will help me pay for my SoundCloud contract. So I'm in debt, Sam, and thanks for the suggestion that I include a PayPal donate link on the website abwarpodcast.com. That's been done. 
You can also send me a message on Twitter at Des Latham. That's D-E-S-L-A-T-H-A-M for Mike to discuss any possible topics you think I should cover. So until next week, goodbye. Een zonder gedaan langs die moeire vierste wal, het zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef. O, breng mij terug naar die Oud-Ransval, daar waar mijn Sari woont. Daar onder een diemel is bij die groen door een boom.